and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is Dave Roundtree. Now Dave is the drummer for the band Blur. He is set to release his debut solo album, Radio Songs, this Friday. It's an electronic album, it's very moody. We kind of joke how there's really no happy songs on the album. And he tells me why it took so long for him to release a solo album. And his influences will really surprise you. As far as Blur, they're set to have two huge shows at Wembley Stadium this summer. I brought up the facts if they're going to come to the United States or not, so hopefully that will be the case. Of course, we mentioned Song 2, the legacy of that song, his relationship with it, the fact that it's everywhere, commercials, sporting events. I don't think I've been to one sporting event where they haven't played the song. He shares a really funny story about touring, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. So, Dave, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Yeah. So uh, I love the new album, Radio Songs. It comes out on the 20th. I can't wait for everyone to hear it. Uh, I'll start off with an easy question. Why did it take so long for your debut album? I guess the a few things kind of combined to make it happen, really. Um, I think that my i've been in recent years i've been composing film music for films and tv series and uh, the success of that kind of gave me confidence really to to take my songs and do something with them um and the the covid the lockdowns and the kind of drying up of uh, of uh, anything to do gave me the space really so it was a kind of perfect storm yeah, um, the the album is a lot different. It's like more electronic, you know, than like a typical Blur album. Is this more of like your passion? Is electronic music? Yeah, it's it's what I was. Yeah, you know, I suppose my passion is the drums, but I didn't want right. to make a drum album, you know. But uh, um, the first thing that yeah, you know, I've been playing tinkering around with synthesizers since the early nineteen eighties, so the the first synthesizer I owned, I built myself from a kit of parts, you know, with a soldering iron. And I've been doing that kind of thing ever since. Yeah. And the, the writing film music, the, the, the kind of genre I'm in is the kind of electronic slash orchestral, um, you know, that's very fashionable at the moment. That's what everybody's doing. So that's what I enjoy doing. Yeah. How did you get involved? Like, you know, scoring with TV shows because the, the, the soundtracks are fantastic. Thank you. Um, I, my girlfriend is a music supervisor. That's somebody who uh, runs the music department on a on a film or TV show. And uh, so a couple of projects where she uh, needed something doing overnight and didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the natural choice. Of course. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so I kind of I built up a bit of a portfolio doing those kind of jobs, really, just for fun. And um, as a result of that, I got I got to. Uh, my first commercial work, and it kind of grew from there, really. Yeah. Have you had uh, any more coming up? No, um, I've I've uh, devoted myself to uh, to my solo album. Right. The second half of this year, so which is a full time job in itself. So yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. But there there are more things on the horizon. You know, we, we shall see. Right. Um, speaking of the album, I mean, like all the songs are great. I just want to focus on my favorite off the album is uh, One Thousand Miles. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, is there like a backstory behind that song? Yeah, it, it's a love song, you know, but uh, the, the context for it is I was uh, 
when I was leaving the house to go to that writing session, which was I, I wrote wrote that with a friend of mine uh, called Hogney, who lives in Iceland. And uh, pretty much as I was on the way out the door, I managed to have a, an argument with my girlfriend. And you know what it's like when there's kind of unre some unresolved uh, business, oh, yeah. you know, at home, it kind of, it just leaves this horrible feeling in the pit of your stomach. <laughs> so, um, you know, that the whole writing session was in kind of in the context of that really. So, uh, you know, it just, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, instead of sending her flowers, you know, I wrote her a love song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Does your best writing come out of like, like what type of emotion does like your best like writing come out of? Um, my best writing comes out of terror, the terror of an approaching deadline. Right. Uh, I haven't done anything yet. That's what, <laughs> that's the most motivating thing for me is a deadline. So, uh, yeah, but uh, no, I like to, it's been a, it's been a difficult few years in the UK. Okay, you know, we've made some ridiculous political decisions yeah. and uh, consequences are continuing to haunt us to this very day, you know, and I found that very, very unhappy, very, lots of reflections of the time for me when I was growing up in the 1970s. And again, the UK was a very dark and dismal place, you know, it seems to me we're heading back in that direction. So that's the kind of, it's not an album about that that's it but it's an album kind of set against that context really so yeah it's, the album is a bit down i have to say there is a, there is yeah. a lot of song on it and uh, you know london bridge is kind of up
slow album and quite down. <laughs> yeah. I hope that doesn't put anyone off. No, it's, I mean, and, I tried yeah. to make it quite beautiful, but yeah, that's just how I was feeling in the kind of two or three months when I was writing those songs, you know. Yeah, I mean, just because like the music is you know not uplifting, you know, it's kind of like you say it's a little depressing. It's still fantastic though, and, and it's still a great listen. So you know, it's definitely not going to shy you know anyone away. But uh, yeah, how did uh, how did your journey like into music start and like your love for radio? Um, well, both my parents were professional musicians, but uh, the, the okay, um, classical players that had been badly burned by the classical music industry, which is even more unforgiving than the pop music industry, really. And uh, so the, they, it, they insisted that I have piano lessons from a very early age, really, from about about the age where I could sit on the piano stool and reach the keys, they insisted. <laughs> and I absolutely hated the piano in those days. I hated being told to do anything, you know, still yeah, do. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, they, they insisted that if I were to, you know, stick at it, I would have something with me, you know, that would see me th that would I could enjoy for the yeah. rest of my life. And I thought rest of my life, that's a long way away. Right. <laughs> uh, I want to do something that I can enjoy now. So uh, I thought, I'll tell you what, if I could get this rule amended, so instead of the rule being you have to have piano lessons, the rule was you have to have a musical instrument lessons, then uh, I could pick the most obnoxious musical right. known to man, and uh, they would be so horrified that they would abandon the rule and I'd be able to go and play football with my mates. So <laughs> my first instrument was the bagpipes, which okay. is obviously the most obnoxious instrument known to man. When played by a when played by a learner, at least when played by a professional, it's a beautiful instrument. But anyway, unfortunately for me, I was very young, so under ten, I think. Pretty heavy uh, too for a kid. <laughs> yeah, and very very physical instrument. You need you know you need an adult's physique to play yeah. it properly. Ideally, a fighting shagging adult's physique. You know, right. <laughs> so uh, that. Uh, so that was kind of out of the question for me. So I thought, well, what's the second most obnoxious instrument known to man? Obviously the drums. Yeah. And so I tried, transferred onto the drums and uh, just became so obsessed with it. Immediately uh, put put on hold all my plans of becoming a footballer and mm. uh, pretty much played played drums from then on with every spare moment I had for the for for the next few decades. Yeah. What were your, your parents' reaction to you playing the drums? They were fine. I, I was, I was, uh, it was one of those very few things in life where I've, I was good straight away. I suppose because I'd done all that time playing piano, so it wasn't like I was unmusical. Um, you know, I had a kind of th foundation in music and I could read music, you know, so it was, uh, and, but, but I, I, they also, they, um, they, uh, there was a music school nearby that uh, that was for kids, taught kids at weekends. So they found, it, you know, me playing the drums is also an excellent excuse for them to dump me at this music school on Saturday mornings and right. have a weekend to themselves. So, uh, so that which suited me fine as well. It has to be said because it was a lot of fun in this music school, far more fun than my actual school. Right. <laughs> um, but. Uh, um, so my first, like that was a, a classical school, really. They, they had some jazz lessons as well, but uh, for anyone who was interested, but by and large, it was for class for wannabe classical musicians. So 
that was my first love was classical music and be, you know being a drummer or percussionist in an orchestra really is the best job because you don't really have to do anything you know right. every now and again you have to whack something or smash something <laughs> but uh, by and large you're kind of sat in the middle of the orchestra next to the basses which yeah. is the kind of you know real kind of visceral place to be in the orchestra and uh, you're just listening to all this music going on around you that's just amazing <laughs> but uh, and yeah so that was what i was going to be was a classical percussionist and then uh, play some jazz in my spare time which is another thing i still love to this day but uh, um, it was not to be i discovered right. i only had a drum in those days a snare right. drum that when i discovered drum kits and pop music and girls right. all of that tend to happen about at the same time exactly <laughs> yeah the uh, any ideas of being a classical musician immediately evaporated and yeah, uh, yeah and uh, that was that really that was the start of that yeah were there any particular that you like fell in love with you know that influenced you well i the the the, the drummers that i liked were jazz drummers you know so that 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 I'm still kind of in awe of the of the virtuosity of some of those people, you know, and like the famous people like Buddy Rich, but also there are a bunch of session musicians that played on the kind of jobbing jazz records. There's a, a guy called Kenny Clare, who I've heard referred to as Kenny Clark on mm -hmm. uh, on some uh, awful jazz programs. It's his name <laughs> Kenny Clare, but he, you know, they they were the people with the they they weren't they didn't have uh, kind of uh you know front of the album name recognition but they were on the back listed on the back of all these great jazz albums and and their technique was just astonishing absolutely astonishing you know what they were able to do and uh, i've always loved big band jazz as well i love the kind of uh the way the uh the drums and the horns punctuate the with, you know these little sort of dotted rhythms and the drummer kind of brings that in by going you know i just love that there's something about that that just blows my mind how beautiful it is how wonderful it is and it's lovely that kind of uh different parts of a musical ensemble talking to each other in that way i've always found very very exciting you know music is, is for me is always about kind of uh, it's always about interacting with other people and bouncing ideas off other people and that jazz is kind of ultimate expression of that i think but uh yes pop music uh bill bruford was like was my hero growing up um he's another classical slash jazz guy that made the transition to pop music um and he had a he's got a really wonky sense of rhythm um really interesting you know he, he played in in uh, he was a kind of prog rock drummer i suppose which wasn't a genre i was particularly interested in but right. the, the um he, what he brought to the table i thought was really really interesting and kind of showed me that you didn't have to be you didn't have to be you know um keith moon and you didn't have to be you know Ringo Starr, you know, another way was possible, you know. So, uh, yeah, another more, you know, kind of drumming as art was possible, which is also something that's quite interesting to me. But, you know, I ended up playing far more like Ringo Starr than Bill Bruford or uh, 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> or anybody else. Yeah. That's the genre I'm in, kind of really. That's what Blur, you know, kind yeah. of music Blur make is far more like that. Right. Speaking of Blur, how did you how did you meet the, the guys in form? Um, it was all through Graham, really, that we came together. But Graham, Damon, and I all come from the same town, though okay. I didn't know Damon. Um, I knew Graham, and I'd played in bands with Graham since I was a kid. You know, so he was. There were a few kind of good uh, musician kids around, and we all played in bands with each other. Really, you know, and um, but then Graham dragged me along to uh, to hear Damon play a concert, play a gig with a little band he was in, and I was kind of blown away because Damon could write songs. Well, that was. It's never wasn't something he's ever really talked about, you know. Right. But it was obvious he had that, and so I was immediately kind of uh, very attracted to him. So I, after the gig, I just hung out with him a bit and offered my services really. And he rang a few weeks later, and we got together. And Graham was playing saxophone at that time in the band. We had a different guitarist, a different bassist, who both left after they threw their toys out the pram flounced off after some argument or other and, right uh, graham reluctantly then segued onto guitar and uh graham uh, graham's friend at university was alex they, they were high out together and alex was a bass player so he dragged him along and then the rest is history yeah how quickly did it take you guys to get a record deal oh very quick we from the the once the once the chemistry is right as it was then suddenly it was much much better straight away you know Alex was kind of the missing link really um, the kind of uh, you know the, that I found that in life you know you get the chemistry right everything falls it falls into yeah. place you know? but uh, yeah you know we'd all been struggling to get noticed to get you know to stick our heads above the parapet at all you know. London and the UK and in Colchester, our hometown, you know, nobody was interested at all. And then immediately the four of us got together, you know, we did a few recordings, the music press got interested, labels started coming around and we were signed within six months of, of that first rehearsal. Yeah, I mean, and then you guys like blew up. Were you kind of like ready for the whirlwind that was soon to follow? Well, it wasn't that much of a whirlwind, really. It was, uh, it was, you know, we we were all desperate to play <laughs> as many, you know, as much as we possibly could, and to to get noticed. And you know, it felt there's there's nothing that feels more deserved and natural than success. You know, in the, the way there's yeah. nothing that feels more undeserved and unnatural than failure. Right. You know, so uh, it was it was pretty. I, I found it, you know, that we were a lot busier, sure, but we wanted to be a lot busier. Yeah. It was kind of, for me, it was, I was fine with it. It was Graham, Graham struggled with it a bit because I think uh, he'd imagined we were going to end up having a kind of sort of different story, you know, the sort of tortured indie band that never got the recognition they deserved. I think that's yeah. the way he thought it was going to go. Right. And suddenly we got the recognition we deserved. It was like, yeah. well, what are we going to do with that? <laughs> How do I process that? Yeah. <laughs> but, it, you know, it was, wasn't it? It was, it was all pretty exciting. You know, there were highs and lows, of course, as there always are, but. Yeah. I mean, I, about it. 
Yeah, I, I discovered you guys with uh, Modern Life. It's rubbish. Okay. Yeah, so and I guess that was an interesting time, you know, because you got your tour wasn't so great in, in the states. It didn't do well. I remember seeing you guys, and you know, it was a great show. You know, it was fantastic. But I mean, like, I guess there were, you know, negative reviews to, to, towards you in, in, a little bit in the states, huh? Yeah. I don't know what I didn't never seen any reviews in the states, so I don't know what was going on there. But uh, yeah, we we had some teething problems as a band, you know. Yeah. When we signed our record deal, our, our label had just had a lot of success with Jesus Jones, right? And they wanted us to be the new Jesus Jones, you know. So they were pushing us quite hard in that direction, and we wanted to do other things, you know. We we had. To, we had our own sort of vision really and so there was a there were you know the, at the time of one life is rubbish we were actually on the on the verge of being dropped by our label right they thought uh, they called it commercial suicide and uh, <laughs> and said that uh, yeah, it better work otherwise they were going to drop us kind of thing but uh yeah luckily luckily we were we were vindicated with them when the next album came yeah, along. yeah. But uh, had we not been, it might have been a very different story. Yeah, <laughs> right. You, you, you might have fall back to the jazz uh, drummer, right? <laughs> <laughs> I might yet. Yeah, but, right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. The, the press comes in waves, doesn't it? They think you're the greatest yeah. thing sliced bread, and then they think you're terrible, and then they think you're brilliant. I've just learned to take it in my stride a bit. I mean, who cares? These mm. things are opinions at the end of the day, and, you right. know, yeah, I judge how successful it uh, gig is by what the audience thought about it, not what yeah. the, the the guy who's probably at the bar, right. you know, chatting up a girl rather <laughs> than at the front, kind of you know, yeah. soaking in the atmosphere makes of it, right? <laughs> Unless it's a good review, which case is exactly right. Exactly, yeah, it's absolutely perfect. Right, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. spot on in every respect. Right, yeah. Then he, he or she is a genius. <laughs> <laughs> I've always loved he or she. I've always loved he or she's work. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I I can't go to a sporting event without hearing song two. It's like er, er, everywhere still. Um, what's your guys' relationship with that song?
well, it's uh, you know it, it was came together very quickly in the in the studio. It was one of those things where everybody's ideas worked and worked very well straight away. That's very un, unusual. That kind of thing happens usually. You have to have a whole bunch of ideas. Some of them work and some of them don't. But everyone came into the studio with a bunch of things they wanted to try, all of which worked really well. And uh, so the song came together very, very seamlessly, very organically. You know, it's, it's not a complicated song. It kind of goes mm -hmm. first chorus, first chorus. Right. You know, but uh, um, yeah, it's kind of, it's, uh, it's one of those, one of those moments really that were transformative in our career. It's still the, the song that pays the mortgage, you know, <laughs> and uh, right. it's been used to advertise almost everything you can think of. Yeah. Every brand of car, you know, every, mm -hmm. any, anybody that wants something to look exciting. And, you know, you, looking back now, it's obvious why, because the chorus just goes woohoo. And that's what advertisers want. Right. They don't want to kind of, you know, they don't want a chorus that sort of uh, breaks down exactly why you should be happy and kind of, you know, quotes Shakespeare and Proust. They just yeah. want woohoo. Yeah. So uh, had we tried to write, write a song that, you know, that was going to, that was going to be used in all those different places, we, we couldn't have done it better, really. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of fitting that America, that's your pop, most popular song because it just goes woohoo. So, you know, we're, we're not too, uh, too intellectual here. <laughs> well, it's, it's the most popular song everywhere, so don't beat yourself up. It's yeah. the most popular song in the UK as well, right? But no, it's just it just connects, doesn't it? You know, and you, you you just never know. But most bands, as it turns out, have one or two songs that uh, that come to define them. I mean, the the, the odd thing for our band is that the two or three songs that that do that, especially in the states, yeah. I think most are so different that most people haven't haven't connected the dots and kind of figured out that it's the same band doing right. songs, you know, there's no other way it was a, a minor hit. Yeah. It's, couldn't be more different from song two, really. And that you yeah. put two side by side together. Most people probably wouldn't, you know, if they didn't know, probably wouldn't connect that they were the same band. Yeah. Like, like out of time is my favorite blur song and like yeah. same thing. You wouldn't even think that song yeah. two with the same band. Lately that you haven't found the time 
always a deliberate thing we never wanted yeah. to do the same thing twice so you know in a way that's given us a longevity yeah given us a career but that's been the downside is that there isn't really a blur sound there's a, isn't even an a blur sound on each record you know between right. the songs there isn't an a blur sound which is yeah. you know so maybe that is the blur sound that there is an a blur okay. sound yeah <laughs> right i mean that, that's good for you guys you know to maintain you know the freshness and the creativity but not for the record companies who want to hear, you know, Blur 2, you know, 9 million times, uh, song 2, 9 million times, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, you can't do, you can't force that kind of thing. I don't think, you know, it's either going to work or it isn't. I, I'm entirely sure that's true. I suppose people who just professionally write songs for other people, that's their job, isn't it? Yeah. You know, Britney right. Spears comes in, you need a Britney Spears song. And it's got to sound like Britney Spears and be a hit. And, you know, yeah. and then come, in comes Ed Sheeran and you've got to do the same thing. Right. But it, you know, so so that is, a, I guess, a different skill, but that's not what we're doing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Like, yeah. And speaking of, like, you know, going back to uh, your solo album, did, um like, writing, like, you know, all these songs and getting together, did you, like, pick up any, like, pointers or anything like that from, like, watching Damon write all those years? Well, Damon writes in a in a way that I've tried to emulate, but never had any success with. So Damon writes the writes the words last. Okay. Writes the often, often writes a little riff or a hook or something first, and then a, then st- f- structures that out into a song, and then writes the words often last. Not always, I think, but that's his, that's his normal songwriting technique well I've, that seems like the right way to do it to me that's the way you see it on the tv that's right. the way, uh, 
you know, the people seem to do it in films, but I've never managed to make that work. Okay. So, so I went up so many blind alleys until I just kind of relaxed into it. And, you know, I come up, I do the words first and then the words suggest a tune and then the tune suggests a rhythm. Well, the words suggest a rhythm, the rhythm suggests a tune, and the tune suggests some chords. That to me seems entirely natural, even though it's, you know, most people would. But that said, I think Elton John writes that way. The Bernie Taupin sends him the words and he puts the words to music. So I guess there is a there is some history there, but I think it's the way most people do it. Yeah. Did you um, have the band, like, listen to the album or you know read the lyrics before like releasing it for any pointers or any critiques or whatnot yeah i i, I sent it to everybody and uh, damon very helpfully sent me back um uh, some notes which were yeah very helpful okay. so, so i sent it out to a lot of people actually including the head the old head of our record company, okay. record company who I always valued his opinions on things. And I got lots of, you know, as you as you might expect, lots of very different notes back. Some people like some songs, some people like other yeah. songs. Uh, um, so, you know, but yeah, it's fundamentally, it's quite hard. It's quite hard when you're close to the music to have any objectivity. Right, about, right. You know, and like, for example, Damon, one of the one of the things Damon said was there was one track on the album. He said it's nothing against the song, but it doesn't belong on that album. And I I knew that, you know, in the back of my head, I knew that actually the yeah. song was an outlier, and uh, you know, but I kidded myself because you know I'm, I was involved in writing and performing and everything, and I you know there was lots of interesting things about it. I kidded myself that it would be fine, and you know, blah 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 blah. But actually, it was a a better album for the song not being on it yeah did you have many of those songs that like failed to make the album oh lots for, that failed to make it at the writing stage yeah okay probably about 50 percent of the songs i wrote which actually isn't a bad isn't a bad hit rate actually about 50 yeah. percent of the songs in this album writing process didn't make it on right now obviously being a drummer like you're you know back of the stage performing has it been like kind of surreal for being moved now to the front of the stage performing? Well, surreal it's felt quite natural, really. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a bit like those dreams where you, <coughs> where you uh, look down and, and uh, realize you forgot to put your trousers on that day. <laughs> not, right. not having a drum kit in front of me, there's something quite comforting about being in that space. You know, it's the yeah. barrier between me and the audience and all of that kind of stuff. Beyond that, no, I sort of kind of, I'm quite, in lots of other things I do, I I stand up in front of crowds of people and talk. So yeah. I'm quite used to doing that. That's no, that's no problem. Right. And I know like you're going to you know, tour in support of this. And I also know, uh, the band's getting back together next year. Is there any uh, plans coming to the States to perform? Well, not so far. Um, the, that, the, 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 the Wembley Stadium gig was the, the one right. that kind of got us all interested again when we were offered that. And is it, right. is it happening? It's not happening. It's happening. It's not happening. That yeah. was going for <laughs> years. The it's happening, it's not happening idea. Yeah. 
but uh, suddenly it was happening and so I think there's some scrambling to put some dates in around that so um, at the moment there's plans to do uh, Europe and to do some festivals in Europe around that around that show but uh, I, I don't think we could rule anything out at this stage okay you know well hopefully it'll it'll work out I'd love to see so. you, know, you know you performing as well as well as the band but uh the you know the album's called radio songs so I have to ask do you remember the first time you heard like one of your songs or a blur song on the radio I remember the early days of yeah I don't remember the first time actually maybe it was I think I actually heard a blur song in a shop on the radio okay. I think that was the first time and it yeah it just definitely felt odd <laughs> you know kind of in a way it does as you're kind of growing up and you suddenly kind of find yourself part of the adult world part of real life rather than a kid kind of watching somebody else's world happening you know I remember the first time some writing I'd done appeared in a newspaper you know, how how amazing that felt right yeah Are there any interesting uh like tour stories you have well, I think <laughs> most of the most of what happens on tour stays on tour. tour, right? <laughs> I said there was one. There was one uh, time where. Uh, how long have you got? This is quite a long story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got a few minutes here. <laughs> I remember we were on tour in Stockholm, and uh, we just played the show, and it's uh, we went back to the hotel. And finally, you know, we were in the bar for a bit and then we went to bed. And at about four or five in the morning, the the fire alarms went off. Right. And you know that thing when the fire alarms go off and you think, what what should I do? Yeah. Probably not fire. Right. Should I get up, should I stay in bed? So, oh God, I said, like, well, I'll stay in bed. I'll give myself five minutes. If it's still <laughs> going on in five minutes, I'll get up, see what's going on. So I got up and I rang the front desk and they said, I'm really sorry. This is always going, there's a problem with the alarm system. It's always happening. Go back to bed, there's an engineer coming in who's gonna turn it off. All right, so I went back to bed. Five minutes later, the bloody thing's still going on. So I got up, put a dressing gown on, opened the hotel door and there's a there's a cleaner going past, pushing a trolley. So I'm so sorry, it's always, it's always happening just honestly they'll turn it off eventually i'm really sorry go back to bed we'll make you a complimentary cup of coffee in the morning right so i went to bed 10 minutes later the bloody thing's still going on i thought well i'm up you know it's five in the morning nobody about to stay i was just get up and go and find some breakfast so anyway i had a shower put some clothes on wandered out the lobby was empty where is everybody? I went outside the hotel, looked up, and the entire top floor of the hotel was on fire. Oh, wow. <laughs> there were fire engines outside squirting water. Right. At the at the hotel, the, the, uh, the, um, there was a bar opposite the hotel, and they opened up and took in all of the people from the hotel who were in, the, in their dressing gowns and, you know, pajamas. <laughs> right. They coffee and ran out and got breakfast for everyone. It was like a... Oh, wow. So these days, that's that's when these days, I, in that kind of situation, I, I ignore what everyone says and follow the fire alarms. Yeah, so, smart. Yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. It's kind of a crazy time. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's nuts. But um, I really appreciate your your time today, Dave. Uh, Radio yes. Song comes out on the twentieth. It is fantastic, and um, best of luck with it. Thank you very much indeed. Very nice to talk to you. 
And a special thanks to Dave for joining me today. Radio Songs comes out this Friday on all streaming sites. If you want to follow him on Twitter, he's at Dave Roundtree. And if you have a guest suggestion, hit me up on Twitter at the first and all one nine, or like the page Living My Youth on Facebook. And go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes you've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. Shows on SoundCloud, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, basically wherever you can find a podcast. A new episode comes out every week. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you then.